listen, pressure is supposed to be a welcome commodity to help us grow. Pressure. But sometimes it feels like an unwanted intruder that we hope to avoid. We've all felt it, and some of us have felt it for a long time. I remember when I was 10 years old and had my first year of Little League, and my dad was my coach. Now, there can be a crushing pressure of athletics and father adulation that, you know, can take hours of therapy to unravel. But it was not because my dad was overbearing. I just felt it naturally and put all that pressure on myself. You know, you go to school, grade school, high school, college, and there's pressure to perform. Grades become the ultimate measure of success. You become an adult in jobs, house, car, even a spouse, all become this kind of measurement for measuring your performance. Thomas Merton wrote in 1968, he said this, there is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. The rush and pressures of modern life are a form of its innate violence. To allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything, to succumb to violence, the frenzy of the activist destroys our inner capacity for peace. It destroys the fruitfulness of our own work because it kills the root of inner wisdom which makes work fruitful. You know, I read stuff like this from Merton and sometimes it can feel hopeless because it's, it's like there's no way out except for maybe buying, you know, 30 acres outside of town an hour away, living off the land, and then you realize if you do that, that just brings its own kind of pressure, different kind than what you had here. Pressure becomes faith's ragged edge. Avoiding pressure is impossible. So how do we cope? Enter Acts 23. The Apostle Paul is being bounced around these last few chapters of Acts. He's falsely accused. Um, he's forced to give several defenses in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, in Rome. Uh, he has to answer before the Sanhedrin, a kind of Jewish Supreme Court that consisted of two different groups, Though they were not in formal session, they gathered together uh, to basically put them on an unofficial trial. Even though there was no trial, no charge, no official crime. And as Paul deals with a variety of these scenarios, he's hopefully able to demonstrate his innocence. But more than that, he puts the focus the entire way upon the resurrection. The resurrection is the source of hope for Jew and Gentile. 
And if we see anything in this passage, I hope we see that. So let's look at Acts 23, verses 1 through 11. I'm going to ask that we all stand. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all conscience, in, in all good conscience, up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope of the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring him into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. Well, let us first realize that Paul is not claiming perfection. Remember, the context is him being accused of bringing a Gentile into this restricted area of the temple. Uh, He's trying to make the point that denying the law is not his MO as a Jew. He obviously cannot say he's been innocent his whole life. Do you remember what he was like while he was a Jew, before he came to Christ? He jailed Christians. He killed Christians. Besides, it was Paul who wrote this in 1 Corinthians 4. For I am not aware of anything against myself, but I'm not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Paul acknowledges that sometimes our self-assessment may not be accurate. And we certainly cannot say absolutely that we are without fault. God is the one who will ultimately make such a judgment. It doesn't mean we shouldn't do a self-evaluation, but it means the penchant to manage image with social media coupled with our natural self-interest, it makes being objective a challenge. Culture can make a big deal about following your inner voice, Listening to your heart, let's cue up the Disney music, being true to yourself, 
And while such statements can be well-meaning and they have a grain of truth, they fail to acknowledge the limitation of a conscience alone without the revelation of the Word of God, without the interaction that comes with relationships in the body of Christ. When our lives are so busy and we're trying to keep up with a frenetic schedule, it is fertile ground to just limp along with only the conscience as our guide. But let's be clear, we are limping at best. Verse two, and the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him in the mouth. Now Ananias was installed as a high priest in AD 47. He, he was suspected of being responsible for a revolt in, Ju, in Judea in uh, AD 52, but he was later acquitted of that. His legacy though was bribery, it was plunder of temple offerings, which led to him being assassinated by Jewish rebels in AD 66. And so here we are with Paul being questioned. But let's remember this, that even in the first century, a man was considered innocent until proven guilty. And Paul has not been officially charged. Yet Ananias felt Paul's claim in verse 1 of being faithful to God, that could not be entertained as if Paul was calling into judgment this whole scenario. So Ananias ordered him to be struck on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck? So Paul was calling down judgment upon Ananias, and by calling him a whitewashed wall, he's pointing out his hypocrisy. You attend to the appearance by outside just painting with white, but inside you're filled with evil deeds. You know, you sit as my judge, and yet you break the law by having me struck without a verdict, without deliberations, without even hearing my side. You indeed are the one not following the law. Now, many reasons are given as to why Paul is so harsh in his judgment to have God strike Ananias. But let's put this in context. This is not the first time he's in a pickle, right? He's been beaten before, thrown in jail, and frankly, this is the first time as a believer we see him responding in such a way. Why is he being so punitive now? I mean, what happened to turning the other cheek, as Jesus said in Matthew 5.39? Or Paul's own words to, when reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Well, there are several explanations as for why Paul is responding this way. But frankly, none seem to fit better than the simple reality that Paul lost his school. Yes, he was an apostle, but he was human, and he still sinned. And he apologizes in verse 5, demonstrated his culpability. Now, losing your temper is understood when you, you know, are falsely accused and somebody hits you in the mouth. We probably all be ready to rumble at that point, right? I'm not recommending it 
or commending it, but it's understandable. We always have a choice to lose our cool and to attack or, in Paul's case, keep our mouth shut. When a person, this is interesting, when you think about this, when a person uses intimidation, when a person blows up often, 1 Timothy says they are disqualified from being a leader in the church if that's their reputation. Verse 4, those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was a high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So Paul's amongst those who serve in the Sanhedrin. They're very aware of who Ananias is as a high priest. And the law said in Exodus 22, 28, you shall not revile God nor curse a ruler of your people. And Paul said he was not aware that Ananias was a high priest. And the text says that plainly. Now, remember, it's been about 20 years, over 20 years since Paul was converted. He's maintained a rigorous travel schedule. He's not spent this whole time in Jerusalem. He's been out of Jerusalem most of this time, although he's visited uh, sometimes. During this time, the high priestly office has changed, even passed into different families. And even if Paul would have known that the name of the high priest was Ananias, he'd have no occasion to recognize him by sight. I mean, this is the first century. There's no cell phone, no TV, no news magazine, right? No newspaper. Even if you heard there was a new leader, even if you knew his name, he would have no way of recognizing him. This was an informal meeting. They were not in their regular you know, professional garb as if a, a, um, an official session of the Sanhedrin I mean, imagine having at least 70 people in a room. Somebody yells out, strike him on the mouth. Would you assume that was the high priest who gave that command? Probably not. It's all to say it's understandable that Paul did not know who this was. But he immediately responds with regret and acknowledges his fault for condemning Ananias. Now, this deserves a little bit of comment because it's not our mistakes that do us in. You know what does us in most of the time where we, you know, we create a, a real rut? It's our refusal to admit that we were wrong. If we were quicker to say, you know what, I was wrong in saying that, I was wrong in doing that, you know, hopefully it's end of story. So Paul displays some kind of instant humility in this act. And humility is admitting that we're in process, that, that we were wrong. And the fact is, is that Christ's perfection is our security. And so we could acknowledge that Paul has sinned, but he was quick to admit it. And God continued to use him. This was an apostle. God did not just put him on a shelf then. God said, well, I can't use you since you failed here. No, he continued to use him. He was quick to admit his fault. Many feel they can't serve, that they've not, you know, earned a spot on the roster because of something that was done or that they did, something that they said. But such thinking is not in keeping 
with the grace of God because through Christ, he washes our sin and he takes the shame of our sin, the guilt of our sin, and he wants to separate that from us. So God sees our security as the finished work of Christ and not our performance. But if our performance lags, we're to be humble and admit as soon as we can, yes, I did wrong here. Verse 6, now when Paul perceived that one part was Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, brothers, I'm a Pharisee, son of Pharisees, it's with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. So the Sanhedrin was made up of these two groups, Sadducees and Pharisees. The Sadducees were kind of the, the progressive part, you know, ready to modernize the law. They were sympathizers with Rome, wanting to gain some more influence and power. It's interesting that we read of Pharisees in the New Testament coming to Christ, but there is no biblical record of a Sadducee doing so. I don't know what more to read into that, but I think it it bears at least mentioning. The Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And it says here, even life after death in the terms of a spirit or angels. Pharisees were considered the conservatives. They were living by the letter of the law. They were silent protesters from Rome. They believed in the supernatural, including the resurrection. And Paul was a Pharisee. Do you remember? Paul wanted to make this clear so that when he got to Jerusalem, he did what the church recommended and that he submitted to what was probably a Nazarite vow, paid for the purification of his own money of four Jewish brothers, which was expensive and all the sacrifices that had to be done. And so he rushed back to Jerusalem in time of the Feast of Pentecost to have, have all this done. He still considered himself a Pharisee. He thought he had an, uh, uh, an audience with them to hear him out. But if there's a key to this passage... It's this statement. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul here implies that the hope of the resurrection of the dead belongs to all true Israelites. The foundation of Israel's hope is fulfilled in Christ and his resurrection. In Acts 4, 11 and 12, he said, It was said that this Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no one, no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And in Acts 5, we read, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So my dear friends, This is our hope today, is it not? Jesus Christ. I mean, you want racial division in our society to be eradicated? It cannot happen without the life-giving hope that we have in Christ. What was interesting is that Kyle and I sat in a session of Congress. There weren't many there, but Nancy Pelosi was there speaking along with Jerry Nadler and another Republican representative. And they were just about from here to the end of this room. 
And the topic was to pass a federal law against lynching. And I'm thinking to myself, wait a minute, this is 2020 and there's not a federal law against lynching? It tells you something about how our society has struggled with the race issue and how slow we are about this. But even more so, it tells me the hope is not in politicians. <laughs> the hope is not in education. The hope is in Jesus Christ. If we want our nation to endure, it's going to take a spiritual revival. It's going to take looking to the cornerstone, who is Jesus. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledged them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes of the Pharisees party stood up and contended sharply, we find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? So when Paul focused on the resurrection, the division between the Pharisees and the Sadducees became even more acute. Great clamor arose. That means there was shouting and screaming were taking place. Remember, this is like a church board. Right? This is both the, the highest authority. They're shouting and screaming. Resurrection divided the Sanhedrin. And the meeting ended in confusion and argument. Now, when the Pharisees are saying that they find nothing wrong in Paul, remember the context. They're not saying they're embracing his ministry because we know that they didn't. They are merely acknowledging that on the resurrection, they are in agreement with him. And when the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. So Lysias, the tribune, knowing that he would not be able to get to the bottom of this whole fracas with Paul, has him taken from the Sanhedrin to the Roman fortress that was connected to the temple, Antonio. Now let's recap. The problem of finding out the real case against Paul has not really been successful, all right? Not made hardly any progress. Paul's visit to Jerusalem, frankly, seems a failure. His plan to convince his fellow Jews of his commitment to Judaism by taking a Nazarite vow that was a colossal miss. They wanted to kill him for bringing a Gentile into the temple. Now, yes, their charge was erroneous, but even when Paul tried to give offense, it only ended in confusion and near death. Does this mean that Paul was a failure? Does this mean that he misread the voice of God that told him to go to Jerusalem? I mean, how many of us have tried to do the right thing? Be it, you know, confront a situation. It might be with a spouse, a family member, a work situation in church. You try to do the right thing, and it doesn't turn out right. 
and you're misunderstood. You're not alone. <laughs> that is common to human experience, right? Can I do the will of God and have things not turn out well? Yes. Look at Jesus. He never sinned. How did it end up for him? They crucified him. The question is, how can I gauge when I'm doing the will of God when things do not turn out well? Because sometimes we, we need some assurance, right? When things like this happen. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. Jesus met him in need. Jesus spoke to him. Jesus stood by him and communicated to him. The Lord stood by him. If this just ended right there, it's all we need to read. It's all we need to know, right? It'd be enough to know the Lord is here. That is the magnificent encouragement. The Lord stood by him. He promised that he would never leave or forsake us in Hebrews 13.5. May I suggest that if the presence of Jesus is not enough, it's very likely we're being tempted by an idol. Think about that. That's where many of us meet great temptation. Oh, I'm a Christian, everything. I go to church. No, that's not what I said. With Jesus Christ, communication, communion with him is not enough. It's like we met an idol. You know, I'm a Christian, yeah, but boy, I just sure would like to have a lot more money. I'm a Christian, yeah, 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 okay. I, I get it, I go to church, yeah, I go to Bible study, you know. I even lead a class, but you know, I sure wish I had a different spouse. I, you know, I, I, I sing, Jesus loves me, this I know. I, I've sung that as a kid, and I believe that. But man, I, I'm just not satisfied with our house. If I only had a different job, then I'd be happy. And we, we fill in the blank with all these things that if only they changed, then I'd have what I need. If the presence of Jesus is not enough, you're likely being tempted with an idol. We all live there on that edge. That's a ragged edge. Perhaps the increased difficulties for Paul, that was one way for God to remind him of this kind of a thing. And maybe God's doing the same with us. He's wringing these idols out of us, right? To realize we don't have to have those things. Now listen, I have a wife I don't deserve, wonderful kids, grandkids, you know, a beautiful home. I have two cars, right? I have a job, at least as of today. Um, <laughs> I, but do I have to have all these things to live? They're God's great gifts to me, but you know what? He could take it all. And I'd still have to say, 
the Lord stood by me. That's all I need. I hope it doesn't come to that. <laughs> but that's the truth of it. But God had to work in Paul in a variety of ways to remind him of this. In Acts 18, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you. Now, wait a minute. He's telling Paul, don't be afraid. Why? Because you know what? At times, he probably got afraid. He's telling him to go ahead and continue speaking. Why? Because he may have had a temptation to not be bold because every time he was bold, he got into trouble. And God is saying, continue to be bold. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And at least while you're in Jerusalem, no one's going to attack you and harm you. I'll see to that. For I have many in this city who are my people. In Acts 22, verses 17 through 21, God spoke again to Paul, told him to go to Jerusalem. God's intervening. God's communicating. In Acts 27, we read, For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong, to whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid. You must stand before Caesar. <laughs> These are all encounters of God speaking to Paul. You want to know where his strength comes from? It's not because, you know, Paul had so much strength of character better than us. It was his confidence in God's presence and direction in his life. It was an overflow of his heart filled with the intimacy and confidence of being in Christ. At the end of Jesus' life on earth, what encouragement did he give his disciples? Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. May I encourage you that some of us, including myself at times, has to change the strategy of how we respond to pressure. Instead of blaming others for negative feelings we have, let us look at our own hearts, our own attitudes that can change. Sit still, phone off, and ask God to reveal thoughts and attitudes that need to be addressed. Instead of just managing external circumstances, change the scenario and find some relief, run to the presence of God. Fill yourself with the wisdom of God. Write down what the Holy Spirit may be telling to you. And in this process, I have found every time God has given me a quiet confidence that replaces the harried anxiety that often marks me. And I have a sneaky suspicion can also mark you. In addition, God encouraged Paul that he did a good job in Jerusalem. Oh, wait, wait, wait. Was God blind? Did he not see what went on here? No. I want you to stop to listen to this. Could it be a constant sense of failure that you feel is wrongheaded? And you need to hear God say he loves you and he's pleased with you. That's right. 
even though things didn't turn out the way you wanted. Paul continued to testify boldly and consistently of the resurrected Christ. He was faithful to his calling, and God said, great job, Paul. You did wonderful. Stop and listen and let God encourage you through his Holy Spirit. You are mine, and I love you, and I am here. The reason many ministers get discouraged is that they're looking only at external results for security and significance instead of the loving encouragement that comes from the presence of God. If you're thinking about ministry, let me clue you into something. Failure in external results is a much more familiar scenario than success. I could write a book on the number of programs, the number of ministries that have failed, at least from our perspective. If the results are the main course of our spiritual encouragement, you get discouraged and you'd quit. Now, I've been a pastor for 30 years. I can honestly say I can only recall a couple times where I'm like, man, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I want to do this. I'm not sure I'm up for this. And I remember talking to one of my pastor friends. He goes, hey, Kev, you know, it's okay if you want to quit and do something else. But just make sure that's God telling you to do it. And not because you're running away because it's hard. And then I told him to shut up. And <laughs> no, I didn't. You know, the average stay for a pastor in one church in 1996 is just a little over three years. In today's world, at least in the U.S., and this was from somebody who's supposed to be an expert, a little over six years. Now, some say the increase is because of baby boomers who are trying to delay retirement, but maybe it's because church leaders are understanding now that relationships are the main capital you have for ministry, and that takes time. You're not in here to wow them with some kind of program, just, you know, have different systems and, you know, look how this is rolled. No, it's to love people through the good and bad. See, the church offers something far more enduring and far deeper than the quick fixes of the culture. And I think of those of you that have been here for long term and the lessons that have been learned from that or, or, or in our family. Now, in a family, I know that you don't necessarily have a choice to leave, but sometimes some who have boundaries have to do that. But I look at one of the reasons that we love each other so much in the body of Christ and, and in a family is because and we've been through some difficult times together, misunderstandings, but we're still in the mix. And, and it, it, we have these common experiences that keep growing and growing, and the, the relationship is more valuable, and that's the way it should work. But that takes time, and it takes these experiences to enjoy that kind of fruit that is enduring. And that's 
what a quick fix cannot provide. You know, I think of the kids, or I think of our own kids as they've been in Sunday school, for instance. And I think of several teachers that they've had that have made the most impact. And I bet you they can't remember a lesson. But you know what they remember? That teacher loving on them. Might take them to McDonald's or they went to their home. They took time just to show that they really cared and they would listen to them. And you have a teacher like that. I mean, you make an impact. Uh, so I'm very appreciative for those in our congregation that, that do that. Paul had to gather up courage to go to Rome. He says, stay on his mission. The Lord assures him that there was a divine purpose in all that had happened to him. You know, and as long as we know that, that God has called us, we can withstand pretty much anything. We can stay put. It explains the reason for Paul's endurance. You know what? We may not hear a voice like Paul did, but Paul didn't have the advantage that we had of having the entire New Testament. And the Lord speaks through the Scripture and through an inner voice of conviction, uh, conviction that is, frankly, just as powerful than an audio message from God himself. The reassurance that comes from this is powerful. And there can be no question, I don't mean this in a simplistic way or some kind of false piety, that God has spoken to us. And when you realize that, it's like something wells up inside of you and you're just thanking God for this moment. We all experience self-doubt, accusations, conflict, these are real-life scenarios. This is where the ragged edge of faith is tested and can become genuine. Pressure is inevitable. The antidote for pressure, run to Christ, choose humility, and I'm serious with this one, take a Sabbath. Take a day to honor the Lord and to listen. You do it intentionally. You do it by blocking other things out. Our stewardship is too precious not to be intentional, to listen to him. And the mission of, that God has called us to is too important to do anything else.